want to say thank you to everybody who helped spread the word on, uh, on Facebook. And uh, it just blows my mind to look at the potential there. Um, so thank you for those of you who, who do your part on that and just spread the word and it generates a little bit of interest. It rarely translates into a uh, standing room only crowd on Sunday, but that's not really the, uh, the purpose. The purpose is to let people know um, what our church is about, some of the things that we're talking about, some of those topics that might relate to real life. And I think that's where we're going to find ourselves in the next few weeks. So the series we're starting today, I'm calling Waiting Room. And for the next few weeks, we're going to address this question of what do you do when you find yourself in a set of circumstances um, and there's no way to change them. All right, there are problems you can solve, then there are unsolvable problems. There are tensions you can address and resolve, then there are unresolvable tensions. And at some point in your life, uh, and in my life, and for many of us here more than once, we're going to find ourselves in circumstances in a season of life, and it is what it is, and it's, that's just the way it is. And there's really no way to change that set of circumstances. So that's where we're going for the next few weeks, I'm going to get started today. If you have a use the Bible app, uh, the event is there with some scripture and some notes and um, a graphic too. Um, for many of us, this idea of the waiting room experience, uh, oh, it manifests itself in a lot of different ways. Perhaps the most relatable way is in, in actually a relational context. You'll find yourself maybe in a marriage. Please don't look at your spells right now. You might find yourself in a marriage that's uh, not a great marriage. You're a few years into this thing, and it's not all that you had in mind when you gathered, you know, with all your friends and family and celebrated your marriage vows. That's just the truth, and you don't want to get divorced because you're not there, and you don't, that's not what you want, and it's not what your spouse wants. It's not that you know that's not the solution to this thing. It's just not great, and nobody seems to want to change, and you look into the future, and it's just the way it is. Or for some of you, it's your kids. They didn't grow up and become what you thought they would have been. And you kept telling them, like, from ninth grade on, these grades count, these grades count. And about halfway through their senior year, when they realized they're having trouble getting any interest from the colleges they wanted to go to, and they realized, oh, yeah, these grades did count, you know, and it's too late at that point. Or maybe, so maybe they're not following in your footsteps. Or, or maybe they are, and maybe that's the problem. <laughs> but their options, you know, just aren't what you would hope that they would be. And it seems like it is what it is, and it is what it's going to be. For some of you, maybe it's a financial thing. Not only are your financial dreams not coming true, you're starting to realize that your financial dreams can't come true. And there's nothing you can do. Or professionally, it just hasn't worked out. Professionally, you'd hope that you'd be settled by now at whatever age you are. Maybe you'd push, you got pushed out of a job or someone in your workplace kind of leapfrogged over you. But when it comes to your job, you're a long ways from your dreams coming true. It's not even close, uh, and it's just the way it is. And it looks like it's permanent. Um, it's not one of those, you know, I just need to put in my time and I just need to wait for my break and I just need to work harder because you've done all those things. So it's not anything like that. For some of you, maybe it's a health thing. You're not going to die from it, but it's something that affects you every day. It's something that limits you. It's chronic. It's not going to get better and they can treat it, but they can't cure it. So it's just part of the way that you do life and it's the way it's going to be. It's your reality. It's your normal. For some of you, it's, a, it's maybe it's a ministry thing. There was a time when you saw yourself engaged in some kind of ministry, maybe in the church or in a parachurch organization or something, and it was real clear to you at that point in your life, maybe sitting around a campfire somewhere or after a conference experience or one of those, high, those spiritual highs, and you made 
you, you kind of had a picture. It was real clear to you where you were to, to be, but you've made some decisions and you, you know, some of those choices and maybe you've gotten addicted to something or you've burned so many bridges in the community where you live and you're finally realizing that you've lost your moral authority. So your credibility is shot. And how do you minister to people without moral authority, without credibility? So anyway, I don't know what your thing is. But for all of us, we come to those places uh, that for this series we're going to call the waiting room. While I wait here, this is just the way it is. And you're not even looking for a solution because you're in a situation, you've looked for the solution. It's, a, it's, it's clear there is no solution. It's not a lack of solution kind of thing. It's, uh, it's there are some options and they're all bad. You know, uh, the options you have will just make things worse than they already are. So whatever your waiting room looks like. For instance, how do you solve loneliness? Too many times I've seen people uh, address their loneliness by making decisions that actually cr eventually create worse loneliness. There are just some things that if you try to make them better, there are problems that come from you trying to solve the first problem and you actually create more problems. So, so what are you going to do? Well, you can run, you can abandon it all, you can give up, you can give up on your teenage kid or your grown kids and you don't want to do that. You can quit, but you don't want to quit. Or you can drink until you pass out every night. That's, not, that's temporary. That just creates more problems. Then there's the whole internal battle that we all have in circumstances like this where we're sitting in the waiting room and we're, we're looking around and we're jealous of other people. We look at their wrinkle-free life and we think, that's the life I was supposed to live. I was supposed to have, uh, they're living my life. I mean, I had a good plan. I even tried to do all the right things to work the plan. I'm pretty sure God gave me the plan. He gave me this vision for my future. And I'm pretty sure, for the most part, I've done the things that I need to do to make it happen. And now I kind of feel like I'm on the outside looking in. Like I look around and all these people are living my life somehow and I'm living someone else's life that I never dreamed of. And there's just no way to recapture what I hoped my life would be. If that's your current reality, that's your normal. There's no going back and you look around. It's easy to get resentful. And it's easy to get angry, and it's really easy to compare. You know, it's really irritating if, uh, if you're a Christian, and I know most of you are, you're, and you're in the church, you're, you're a follower of Jesus. It's, it's irritating because uh, sometimes you're around other Christians, and they say silly things. And I don't know what you want to do, but I want to slug them. It's my spiritual gift, and that's what I would like to do. I'm about, what, six minutes into this thing, and this is probably about as far as I'm going to go before I start offending people. So here, I'm just going to go for it now. <laughs> when people say things, and here, I can, okay, I can poke at the Christian, the, the Christian subculture and that churchy thing, because that's, that's me. It's been my whole life, all right? So I, I have all the credibility in the world to speak to this thing, because I've said a lot of these things and bought into a lot of it over the years. But when you say things like, you know what? God answered a prayer for me the other day. I'm like, that's cool. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. What was that? Well, I, I lost my keys, and I, and like, you, you lost your keys. Yeah, I lost my keys, and I prayed that God would show me where my keys were, and then my phone rang, and I, I left it in my jacket pocket, and I went to answer my phone, and there were my keys. God is so good. Praise the Lord. And I'm like, yes, praise God. I hate you. because you don't even know what a real problem is. <laughs> Let me tell you about my life. You know what I'm talking about? You've been there. 
Because all of us have a picture of a preferred future. All of us have a picture of what family is supposed to look like, of what this stage of life is supposed to look like, of what romance is supposed to look like, what financial stability is supposed to look like, what a successful career is supposed to look like. And when we find ourselves in a set of circumstances and it's just not going to be that way, what do you do when there's nothing you can do? And just about everybody around you constantly reminds you, not on purpose, but just with their lives, you know, their, their smiles, their happy-go-lucky approach to life, and when they, you know, what they drive and where they live and where they go on vacation, and their freaking Facebook and Instagram, they're just reminding you all the time. Everything reminds you of what you don't have. Everything reminds you of what opportunities you've lost, what you've missed, because maybe you never had it in the first place, and it seems like it's unattainable now. It's just not going to happen. You're constantly being reminded. And it is what it is. And it's just the way it's going to be. And in these seasons of life, we draw some really harmful and unhealthy and wrong conclusions about others, about ourselves, and certainly about God. We believe some lies and we repeat them over and over again, mostly to ourselves. The first one is that I'll never be happy again. It's like, I just wish I was back in like middle school. Because man, that was a life. Yeah, I wish I was in like seventh grade again, because man, I had it all figured out, it was so awesome. I wish I was back in high school, or man, you know what, I wish I was back in college, mostly freshman year of college, because my parents paid for everything and I didn't do any work, I had no responsibility, it was a perfect world, you know, no bills and all the freedom in the world. You look back, my point is, you look back at some season in your life, those first few years of marriage, the first few years of parenting, the first few years in that job, and you were so happy, and now you look at your life and you're like, I'll never be that happy again. And you start telling yourself that, and you start believing that, and you start living your life as if that's true. Here's another one. Nothing good can come from this. You're going to hang with me on this one, okay? Because you're not going to get the standard answer uh, response on this one. Because it's like, Todd, don't get up there and tell me some whitewashed Bible story about how it all worked out and how they walk out of the ark, you know, after like a year, and it was so beautiful, and the vegetation was lush, and there weren't any animal carcasses or human corpses anywhere, miraculously. And, and it was just like, a, it was like, oh, and look, a rainbow. You know, isn't God good? No, you won't get any of that from me. Oh, he was sick. Jesus healed him. They all went to heaven before supper that night. It was so great. This is the thing that gets me about the people that Jesus healed. They eventually died. So anyway, that. Where were you then, Jesus? Sorry, whoa. Um, gotten ahead of myself. Because you, we just tend to think, my circumstances? Yeah, that's great. That's all great. And the stories in the Bible and the little, the way that we, we clean things up and romanticize things and all that, and, and, and that's all great. But my story, my circumstances, where I'm living right now, nothing good can come from this. For some of you, maybe you've been to the point where you've said there really isn't even any point in continuing. There's no point in even battling through this relationship. There's no point in trying to fight through this. I don't see any point in pushing through this. In fact, I don't really see any point in living. Maybe you've been there. So for the next few weeks, we're going to dive into this lighthearted, uh, happy topic. Uh, don't you love waiting rooms? I, man, I can't even. I mean, I think the worst, oh, I despise them. Um, I think the worst waiting, waiting rooms for me are the ones where you can see what's keeping you waiting. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I used to take my car to a shop, and I had to stop because um, I couldn't stand the window in the waiting room. 
where I could see what was going on in the shop. And I'm sitting there at this car repair shop in a waiting room with a window into the shop. And I'm staring at a 1994 TV with reruns of Dr. Phil on mute. And out of curiosity, I look into the shop, and there's no one there. Okay, right? Five bays, five cars, not a soul in sight. And you're like, I've been here an hour and 45 minutes. I need an oil change. What is going on? And then, oh, wait, here comes somebody from out of nowhere. Oh, good, he's going to go to work on my car. No, 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 not that car. That's not my car. What are you doing? And where is everybody? Why is nothing happening while I'm sitting here watching nothing happening? I don't know about you, but I don't enjoy waiting rooms. Really, doesn't matter if it's the dentist, the doctor, the hospital, um, the bank. I think the bank is one of the most awkward places to, w- to wait to talk to somebody. Little, some tunes would be nice. Or how about um, a restaurant? It'll just be 10 minutes. And 20 minutes later, the lobby is shoulder to shoulder, and no one you know, is especially happy to be waiting, and especially when there's a dozen empty tables, and you're like, what's happening right now? I need to eat. Or the ultimate. The ultimate. You know the ultimate. Yes, we call it the DMV, (laughs) although in Maine, it's actually called the what? The BMV, right, it's the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, just a little pet peeve there. I was there a few weeks ago. I just had to say a little silent prayer there. God forbid they play any music or turn on the radio. It's so awkwardly quiet. So you're trying hard not to listen to everybody else's transaction at the window, but you can't help it. And you can't help but hear that the person at the window forgot their insurance card. Who knew? Or that person at window two, somehow he's 45 years old, been driving for 25 years, doesn't know he needs to pay his his excise tax in his hometown first. Doesn't know that, never knew that. Window three, well, first of all, who am I kidding? There's no one at window three. Someone's on break. (laughs) Right? I don't know why they have three windows. Reminds me of this classic scene from a classic film. Watch this. Flash is the fastest guy in there. You need something done, he's on it. I hope so. We are really fighting the clock and every minute counts. Wait. They're all slots? Flash, flash, 100-yard dash. Buddy, it's nice to see you. Nice to see you, too. Hey, Flash, I'd love you to meet my friend. Uh, darling, I've forgotten your name. Hmm. Officer Judy Hap, CPD, how are you? I am doing just fine as well as I can be. What? Hang in there. Can I do? Well, I was hoping you could run a play for you. Well, I was hoping you could today. Well, I was hoping you could run a play for us. We are in a really big hurry. Sure. What's the plate? Two nine T number. 
29THD03. Two. Nine. THD03. T. HD03. H. D03. D. Mm -hmm. Zero three. Zero. Three. Mm. Ah! Here. Yes, yeah, yeah. Hurry. You. Thank you. Two nights HDs are three. Go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So anyway, yeah, I'm probably the only one in the room like this, but I'm really not a fan of waiting. I, uh, it's frustrating to me. It's frustrating when all I want to do is, you know, get my teeth clean and get out of there so maybe I can accomplish something today because that's what I like to do. I like to accomplish important things that really matter. And if it's possible, I like to solve some problems, solve some big problems, lots of problems. That's what I like to do. I'm a problem solver, aren't you? That's what we all think. We're like, why am I wasting my time? I got stuff to do, right? So, I mean, I'm such a problem solver, just naturally, that, and gifted, so that when you, I mean, when you come to talk to me, I like to sit back and listen. I do. I do. I like to sit back and listen for about five minutes, and then I'm going to try to find a place to interrupt you and say, well, let me tell you what you, you should do. Here's what I, I have the answer. I know what you should do. Let me tell you. I don't understand why no one comes to me for counsel anymore. I have no idea, but I'm just a helpful person like that. I like to solve problems. There are some situations uh, where someone sits down with me and they tell me about what's going on and they even kind of tell me up front, Todd, I'm not looking for an answer here because I don't know if there, I kind of have accepted that there isn't one. I just need to talk about it. I just need to tell someone. And in the, those moments, at the uh, epicenter of that situation is a, is a question, especially for followers of Jesus. And it's a question I want to start with today. If you're sitting in a waiting room wondering how long you're going to be there, you're in a season where nothing seems to be happening and you don't like it and there's no end in sight, there's no solution, it's just it is what it is and it's just the way it is, I want to talk with you specifically. We're going to explore this over the next few weeks, so this is just the introduction, this is just the first part of the conversation, but at the epicenter of the struggle, especially if you're a Christian, is the question, does God know and does God care? Is God concerned? Does God hear my prayers? If I could just know, if I could just get some assurance that God somehow knows about this, I mean, that's almost enough, for now at least. The good news is, if you're a Christian, that the New Testament speaks to this directly. The, if you're not a Christian, the good news is that the New Testament speaks to this directly. And for some of you, this might be the thing. This may be the topic. This may be the season of your life where God has your undivided attention. And you're, you know, mad as heck as you could be at God. And you aren't so sure God, what God is even like anymore because, you know, he can't be the loving, caring, compassionate, you know, merciful God that you always thought he was and that you sing songs about and you just keep, but you keep talking to him anyway. And then you catch yourself wondering, you know, I don't, even know, I don't even know who I'm talking to. I'm just angry at whatever or whoever could solve this. 
First of all, you know, God can take that. He can handle your anger. He's like, he, he can take it. The great news is in the New Testament, uh, this is not a surprise. This is, uh, this is not something new. So today as we get started with this, uh, I want to go right to the emotional center of this issue because for all of us, when we're in a waiting room situation, the question is, where is God? So let me just state a truth, and then we're going to talk about this for a few minutes. First of all, God is not absent, God is not apathetic, and God is not angry with you. Some of you need to hear that. God is not absent, even when it feels like he's absent. God is not apathetic, even though at times it feels like he doesn't really care that much. And God is not angry with you because, you know, you've probably asked the question, what did I do wrong? Where did I, I thought I was making the right choices. What did I do wrong? How, why did this turn out this way? How did I do to deserve this? And God, what does it take to get your attention? And how can I get your blessing back? How can I get you to pay attention? So the good news is God is not absent and God is not apathetic and God is not angry. God's silence is not a sign of his absence. So before we jump into this, maybe because we need to recognize this about ourselves, when we're in a waiting room kind of experience where nothing seems to be happening and it's dark and we lift our voice to God and we pray but heaven is silent, ever had that happen? How many of you have ever had that happen? You prayed a prayer and felt like you didn't really get an answer. Let me see, I'm just curious. Anybody? For those of you who are awake, can I just see? I want to, anybody ever prayed a prayer that didn't get an answer? I'm just going to wait until we're halfway honest here, okay? For those of you who, are, who always get answers to your prayer, we're going to have a special group for you afterwards because, man, I got some questions for you. I want to know how that works for you. So, uh, anyway, no idea where I was. There's a little bit of, uh, when, when we're, we're struggling with God's silence, there's a little bit of hypocrisy in this. Do you accept the idea that perhaps there's a little bit of hypocrite in all of us? some more than others. But anyway, here's, here's what I know about each and every one of us, okay? That there's been a time in your life, a period in your life, uh, a stage in your life, a, a spring break in your life, a night in your life, a date in your life, a relational thing in your life, a financial thing in your life. There's been a time where the presence of God has been the furthest thing from your mind, yes? It's true. That night, that weekend, you're driving somewhere to get into trouble on purpose, you know, you know what I'm talking about. You're not thinking then, God, where are you? I want to feel your presence in this moment. No, we all have some, some level of theological gymnastics that we go through in these kinds of moments. You're planning to spend the weekend in sin on purpose. You got a plan. You took off time. You booked a reservation for this purpose. You got sin packed in the back seat. You got it on ice. You got it stuffed up under the seat. And you hope you don't get pulled over. I mean, you are going for it, okay? And on your way into this intentional sin, you are not saying, you know, God, I'm just going to play a little worship music now because I just want to feel your presence. So we, th- then we tend to just kind of make a leap. Well, God doesn't really care about that kind of stuff. You hope. God doesn't take individual behavior into it. I mean, you know, he's got bigger things. You hope. God doesn't know what I'm up to this weekend. Because I've talked to him and I don't even get a response. He doesn't even know my name. I'm not so sure there even is a God. So I got this. No big deal. Life's a journey. Life is a highway. I want to ride it all night long. You know, and in that... I hope you wrote that down because I'm going to work on fleshing that out a little bit. See, I'm going to work on that. Just kind of rolls off the tongue. In that moment... It's all about you, right? And you purposely, intentionally shut God out. 
And if you're raised in the church, oh man, if you're raised in the church, your conscience starts to seep in. And you had to figure out ways to shut down your conscience, didn't you? You came up with ways to tune your conscience on. I mean, you, you had ways to silence old Jiminy Cricket in those moments and in those decisions and in those choices. Isn't it amazing when, when you don't want to sense the presence of God, we know how to shut God right out, don't we? We've all done it at some time. Some of us are still dealing with the consequences of ignoring God's voice in those moments. But here's what we're going to talk about for the next few weeks. In spite of all that, in spite of the fact that it's true of most of us, your Heavenly Father loves you. Man, I want you to get that. The reason I can say this with confidence, that your Heavenly Father loves you, is because one of the most famous statements in all of history says, for God so loved the Christians, oh, that's, I'm just kidding. For God so loved the good people who tried really, no, oh, for God so loved the citizens of the United States of America. No, John, who knew Jesus, the Apostle John, who knew Jesus better than anyone else, is an older man. He looks back on his life and on his time with Jesus, and he writes these words, perhaps the most famous words ever written. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So here's the thing. Here's how I know that God is not absent. The reason I know that God is not apathetic, and the reason I know that God is not angry with you, is that he poured out his anger on his son for you. And when he sent his son to the earth to die on a cross, he settled once and for all the question of whether or not he knows your name, whether or not he has your best interests in mind, whether or not he cares about you, and whether or not he's concerned about the details of your life. So even in those moments when you tuned out the presence of God, listen, God was present. And now in these dark times when you need and you want to experience the presence of God, listen, God is still present. Let me tell you how I deal with this, and uh, then I want to give you an example from the Scripture, because this is helpful for me. When I'm in dark moments or I have my doubts, and when it feels like God has been silent, and it's probably because He's distant, and, uh, you know. and if it surprises you that I have doubts, you need to understand something, because um, I think about this stuff all the time. I mean, part of it is because it's my job. It's what I'm supposed to do. I've got to out-worry everybody in this room. That's why it's on my job description. And uh, I have to out-doubt everybody. I've got to think through all, every single angle of doubt on your behalf. And I've got to out-love all the people uh, that I don't really love because that's my job. It's what I've got to do. So that's, I'm just being facetious. I, I don't want to pretend. Here's the thing. I don't want to fake my way through the Scripture. So um, some of this obviously is a little, yeah, it's hyperbole. I'm embellishing a little bit. But here's the deal. I don't want to fake it. I want my, my exploration of Scripture to be for the right reasons. I want to be the real deal. And I, yeah, I'm trying to make a point. I've been a pastor for 21 years next month. Before that, I was a youth pastor for nearly eight years. Nearly 30 years in pastoral ministry, so I started at 11. You're right. You did the math. And in my personal life, when I've got doubts or stuff around me doesn't make sense or the people I care about are going through stuff that doesn't make sense, or I've got some nagging, unanswered questions, or maybe I'm walking with you, as I have with many of you, through some complicated and painful situations, your waiting room story. And it kind of takes the legs out from under you, and that affects me. Here's what I retreat to. I retreat to this question, first of all, did this happen? Did anything like this happen to anybody in the Bible? And for my own purposes, I like to ask, be a little more specific, did this happen to anybody in the New Testament? I find it a little more relatable. I don't know if you do. If I can find one person who I know loved God, 
maybe somebody who walked with Jesus, somebody who God cared about that Jesus knew, if they had a similar experience, and if in that situation they had the same questions, that would make me feel better. It allowed me to continue to explore my questions. Because you can follow Jesus and have parts of your life that don't make any sense, and, and maybe it even seems like God is silent. It helps me to know that I'm not the only one, and the people I care about are not the only ones. So here's the extraordinary thing. If you're in a waiting room kind of circumstance, oh, listen, if you're not, just hold on, because you're going to spend some time there. If you're in a waiting room kind of circumstance where for the foreseeable future, it's not, gonna, not, not much is going to change, it's not going to get any better, might actually get worse. If in that moment, in that season, you feel like God is silent, maybe they're right now. And if, if God is silent, you've taken that to mean that God is absent. I've got some great news for you. First of all, you are not alone. And second of all, you are not the first. I hope that just lifts a little weight off you. Today I want to look at two really familiar uh, stories that was all introduction. And we're going to look at them real quickly. And even if you grew up in the church, one of them you might know better than the other. And I simply want to touch on these because in both accounts, these are people that Jesus knew and Jesus loved. And he kind of, it seems like he kind of set them up for the thing that many of us have experienced and some of you are experiencing right now, where you think, God, where are you? Do you love me? Do you know my name? Do you care? I need to know that you are present. So the first person is John the Baptizer. In some churches, he's called John the Baptist. I grew up in Baptist churches, so where he was always referred to as John the Baptist. It doesn't mean he was a Baptist. He wasn't the founder of the Baptist church. We all know Jesus founded the Baptist church. It just means... <laughs> I thought my former Baptist would appreciate that. But anyway, it was just a joke, people. It just means that he was a baptizer. Okay, so John the baptizer is actually a better description. You can't really understand the significance of the story unless you read your Bible with a finger in the back of the Bible where the maps are. So uh, do you, if you, how many of you are carrying a paper Bible today? I'm just kind of curious. You got, so some of you know that in the back of your paper Bible there's some maps. Usually there's some maps there. Those are important from time to time, like in this story. Here's the deal. One day, Jesus is teaching in Galilee with his inner circle, and he's about to send them out to spread the gospel, and a group of guys walk up, and they say to him, Jesus, we have a question. We are John the baptizer's disciples, and John has sent us to you, and he's, he wants us to ask you this question, and then we're going to go back to John and give him your answer. So here's our question, Jesus. Are you really the Messiah? That's what John wants to know. That's the question he like answered. Are you really the promised one, the one we've been waiting for for so long? John wants to know. Now, if you know the story... Why didn't John come ask Jesus himself? Where was John? Yeah. Jail is definitely the cleaned up version of where he was, for sure, yes. He, to say John was in prison was maybe not totally accurate. John was in a dungeon. Here's why. The reason he was in this dungeon is he started taking shots at some people in high-ranking political positions. If you can imagine a scenario like that, where anybody would ever do anything like that. There's a man who'd been appointed king over this region. We know him as King Herod. He was the son of the, this gets really confusing. He was the son of the King Herod who slaughtered all the babies when Jesus was an infant. Okay? This is his son, Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas had a brother. Want to know what his name was? Herod, right. Herod Philip, because the first king Herod named all of his children Herod. In fact, Antipas had a niece named Herodias. So these guys might have had an ego problem, I'm pretty sure. But Herod, Herod Antipas is the king, and his brother Herod Philip married their niece, Herodias. And it's kind of weird, wherever you might live and wherever you might be from, and whatever time frame, you, wherever you've lived in the story of human history, that's just weird. 
So Herod Philip marries his niece, and time goes by, and he goes to Rome for an extended trip, and his wife-slash-niece has an affair with his brother, her uncle. Okay, now I know. I was going to diagram this for you on the screen, but I couldn't figure out. I was confusing myself. It has to be a three-dimensional uh, drawing, I think. But I was, anyway, so she has this relationship with Herod Antipas, the king. And by the time her husband, I guess ex-husband, Herod Philip, gets back in town, by this time his brother had married his niece-slash-wife-slash-sister-in-law-slash-niece. Niece, I don't really know. So this is a big scandal, okay? Everybody's talking about it. Talking heads on cable news are talking about it all the time. You know, they've appointed a special counsel. It's a breaking news every night. Somehow, I don't understand, but somehow everybody knows about this. The word has spread. And John the baptizer, in his preaching ministry and challenging his listeners uh, to repent of their sin, he uses King Herod and Herodias as examples. And Herod, King Herod thinks it's kind of funny. He gets a kick out of it. Herodias doesn't think it's so funny. So she gets her new husband slash ex-brother-in-law slash uncle to have John arrested and thrown into prison. And not just any prison. She sends him to this dungeon in the southeasternmost part of that, their kingdom, out in the desert in a place called Machaerus. And he's left there. And time goes by, and time goes by, and time goes by. So he begins to experience what we experience when time goes by and nothing happens. He begins to have doubt. Here's the interesting thing. Jesus loves John the baptizer. Remember early in their story, nobody knew who Jesus was, but they knew who John the baptizer was. And one day John is baptizing people because that's what he does. And he sees Jesus and he says, okay, you've been listening to me. You've been devoted to me. You've been following me. That's, but you know what? This is, this is the time. That's the guy right there. Follow him. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away to the sin of the world. And John the baptizer like announced Jesus. Uh, John's mother and Jesus' mother were related. They were cousins, so which meant John and Jesus were cousins. We're, and here's, here's what Jesus says about John in his words. This is in Matthew chapter 11. It's also in Luke 7. It says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So John the, John the baptizer is the greatest man on earth. That's what Jesus said. That's what Jesus thought of John. Now John isn't so sure what he thinks about Jesus. Here's why. This is Matthew chapter 4. You knew we'd get there eventually. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison. Now what comes next? Before I put the rest of the verse up. What comes next? If I had been making up a story, if I had written this, and I thought, let's just add a little twist here, and I'm writing fiction, I wouldn't have put this in the, in the because it just doesn't make sense. Because nobody, I don't know how you make this up. Who would put this in here if it, it, it has to be true? That's the only reason it's in here. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are reliable witnesses. They wrote reliable accounts of what happened in the life of Jesus. So if you're wondering if this really happened, here's the thing. If you're, if you're trying to write a story that makes Jesus look like the greatest guy, you would not have included this. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, what, what do you think he did? Went to visit him? Sent him a care package? Sent him some cookies? Maybe sent a couple disciples down there to Machaerus to visit, maybe to bring him some food, maybe perform a miracle and break him out of prison. What do you think Jesus, John's friend and relative, what do you think Jesus did when he found out that the guy who said he's the greatest human on the planet, what do you think Jesus did when he found out that John the baptizer was in this dungeon? Here's what it says. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, 
he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum. If you're reading your Bible and you're thinking, that's interesting. Let's keep on reading, figure out what happened. Let's just stop for a second because this is kind of a big deal. Let's look at a map. Let's look at this map. So can get the, just so we can kind of get the picture of this, okay? So when Jesus, Jesus did most of his ministry up in this area, uh, John the baptizer kind of worked the Jordan River here. And when, when Jesus heard, he's up here doing teaching in Galilee. He was actually, I think, around Nazareth, right? which is right there. You can't really read it. But uh, he hears that John, the announcer of Jesus, the, his cousin, the greatest man who ever lived, is in prison way down here in Machaerus. Jesus decides this would be a good time to go from here to Capernaum, up here on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. Let's just go up here. We're not going to visit here. We're going to live here for a while. So Jesus hears that John has been arrested, taken to Machaerus. You would have thought he would have started the trip south to Machaerus to visit him. It's about a 100-mile trip. Would have taken a few days, but hey, let's get going. But no, uh, Matthew, who was there, says that Jesus withdrew and actually lived for a little while in Capernaum. I mean, he could, have stayed, he could have stayed up here in Nazareth, that would have been fine, but no, he heads even further north in the opposite direction of Machaerus and decides we're going to just kind of stay here for a while. Okay. This is how we feel sometimes, yeah? We're in the desert, and somehow, Jesus, you're up north on the lake. Hello? If you're going to settle into your lakefront lifestyle, could you at least give me a visit, cousin? Could you send me a letter, bake me some cookies, let me know you care? Oh, and, and it gets worse. Did you know that, well, first of all, you can get on a plane and you can be in Israel in less than 24 hours. Anybody here ever visited Israel? I'm curious. Nobody? Uh, you could go down to the Jordan River. You could actually go visit Machaerus. It looks like, it looks like this. Give us that picture if you don't mind, Stan. looks like that. That's Machaerus. Machaerus is right up here. Beautiful, isn't it? <laughs> in a way, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, so and when you, you could actually visit what's left of Machaerus. Give us that next screen. This is what's left of Machaerus. This is the, kind of the mountaintop, hilltop uh, palace, and there was a dungeon somewhere in that where they had hidden John the Baptist. This is what's left of, of, the, of the fortress. Very scenic, don't you think? Uh, meanwhile, here's the view from Capernaum, the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is at the beach. He's drinking fresh coconut milk under a cabana, you know? John the baptizer is where? Show us this picture. Yeah, he's there on the top of that, way up there, 100 miles away, the scorching heat. He'd been there for over a year, most likely closer to a year and a half. And when he's finally had enough, he says to his guys who'd been bringing him food, he said, they didn't feed you in the dungeon. If you didn't have friends bring you food, you just starved to death. There are no meals, there's no rec time, there's no court date, there's no promise of a trial. So for a year and a half, his friends are bringing him food and they're telling him these stories about Jesus and he's like, that's great, yeah, what about me? Jesus, you've forgotten about your cousin down here? Remember that day I announced your arrival? That was a pretty good day, yeah, that was pretty good. What about me, Jesus? And he sends his guys to Jesus. And after John's been wasting away for a year and a half in Herod's dungeon, they find Jesus on the beach and they say, Hey, your cousin John, the baptizer, remember him? He has a question for you. Are you really the Messiah? Are you really the one? Because he's having some doubts, if you can imagine. 
And Jesus says, here's what I want you to tell John. Tell him, I am the one. Tell him about all the things I'm doing for everyone else. Tell him about all the people that I've healed. Tell him about all the lame who walk and the blind who see. And this is funny. Tell him about the prisoners who've been set free. Maybe you shouldn't tell him that. (laughs) Tell John that, yes, he can keep believing in me because of all these things I'm doing for everybody else. And there it is, isn't it? The reason I tell you the story is because when you're hanging out in Macaris, I mean, you're stuck in the hot, dirty, dark, smelly waiting room that feels an awful lot like a dungeon. (coughs) Jesus can still love you. And Jesus can know exactly what's going on and where you are and not love you any less. Here's a fascinating thing. This is kind of the thing I love about the Bible. Right after these guys leave to go give John the message, Jesus says the most interesting thing to the people who are there listening. And this is in Luke 7. He says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. This is a really powerful statement. It's almost like an admission of guilt. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. In other words, blessed is the one who does not interpret my silence, for example, as absence. Blessed is the one who, when I do certain things or don't do certain things or don't answer in a certain way or on a certain time frame or don't come through or don't change circumstances, blessed is the person who trusts me and believes in me and follows me in spite of me, in spite of all that. Blessed is the person who continues to trust me even when I don't seem to be acting on their behalf. So don't interpret God's silence as absence. Jesus knew all about John, and your Heavenly Father knows all about you. The other story, I'm going to just share this one real quick, and we'll be done. Uh, it's a pretty familiar story, and I've taught in this story several times over the years, but what's cool about this is uh, it actually happened right in the place where John the baptizer used to baptize. So a uh, time goes by, and John is either still in the dungeon, or maybe he's already been put to death. Oh, spoiler alert, if you want to go read the story. Herod, actually his wife slash niece, has John beheaded. Jesus shows up, he begins teaching in this area now, in the very spot where John the baptizer used to baptize. And uh, the people who'd heard uh, John speak are like, this guy's amazing. This is the guy that John the baptizer told us about. Oh, has anybody seen John, by the way? Where's, I haven't seen him in a while. Maybe he's out in the desert on a locust cleanse or something. But he's the very guy that John told us about. And while John never did miracles, this guy does miracles. This is amazing. So Jesus is teaching. And this is in John chapter 11. And a man runs up to him, and he's out of breath, and he manages to say to Jesus, Master, I have a message for you. The one that you love is sick. Now think about this for a second. Someone walks up to you and says, the one you love is sick. Who are they talking about? Don't answer that out loud. Who is the one in your life that only needs to be described as the one that you love? Because this messenger doesn't even use a name. He just says, the one that you love is sick. And some of you know the story. You know who he's talking about. Who's he talking about? Lazarus, right. Lazarus was one of Jesus' closest friends. He loved Lazarus so much that all the messenger had to say was the one that you love. And Jesus knew who he was talking about. So if you'd never heard the story, what would you expect Jesus to do when he finds out that someone he loves is sick? I mean, think about this. Strangers would touch Jesus and they were healed, okay? Jesus healed all kinds of people. He didn't even know their names. He didn't ask any questions. He didn't know if their lifestyle contributed to their sickness. He just healed them. And now somebody he knows is close, and he's close to and is sick. Verse 5 says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister, whose name was Mary, and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, <laughs> he stayed where he was. <laughs> I think Jesus' disciples were confused at this point. 
They figured Lazarus is sick. We're going to Bethany to see Lazarus. We're going to help the sisters tend to him. I mean, we, if we even need to, because knowing Jesus, he'll heal him on the way, and we'll get there, and he'll have supper ready for us or something. But let's go, Jesus. And Jesus says to them, sit back down, boys. We're not going anywhere. But Jesus, Lazarus is sick. Aren't we going? No, we're staying right here. That doesn't make sense, Jesus. Why? Why? I don't know. Why? Because I'm up to something you don't understand. God's going to do something no one, see and come, no one sees coming. And Lazarus can handle it. And Mary and Martha can handle it. They're going to be mad at first, and they were. They're going to misunderstand me, and they did. They're going to question me, and they did. But Jesus says, it's okay, guys. Sit down. We're going to stay here for a while. And Lazarus got sicker and sicker, and he died. And Jesus knew his name. And he loved Lazarus very much. Listen. Don't confuse God's silence for apathy. Don't confuse God's apparent absence for not caring. And I realize this doesn't make much sense if, I, if my goal here is to make you feel better about your life. But that, that isn't really my agenda. It doesn't exactly give you warm fuzzies. Understand that. I could feed you some pithy sayings, some cute bumper sticker, Christian radio, watered down small version of God that isn't who God is. And you might feel better about your situation you know, just trust him. God's in control. I really need someone to explain that to me someday. And I'd like to know where that's found in the Bible. I'm not interested in helping you sleep at night and calming your nerves. I'm not interested in making you feel better about your situation. It's not my goal. I'm much more interested in talking about your Heavenly Father as he really is and as he really operates. So I just want to create a category that helps all of us understand that your unanswered prayer does not mean that God is uninterested, and your uninterest, uh, unanswered prayer does not mean that God is uninvolved. <coughs> if you've been praying and praying and praying and waiting and waiting and waiting for God to answer, and you're wondering what's going on, then you and John the baptizer have something in common. Isn't that cool? You and Mary and Martha and Lazarus have something in common. You and some of the finest people who've ever walked on the planet and some of the people that God has used in the most significant ways have something in common. God's silence is not evidence of his absence, and his apparent absence is not an indicator of apathy. So how do we know that? <clears throat> because of stories in the scripture, like John the Baptizer, the story of Lazarus, and lots of other stories. And there's a category, though, where we feel abandoned, and we're not abandoned. There are seasons and situations in life where God is silent, and we presume he is also still. But he's neither silent nor still. I love these words of Jesus. Blessed is the one who does not stumble, doesn't lose their faith on account of me. And that's why we're going to talk about this for the next few weeks here on Sunday mornings when I'm here at the podium. So to wrap this up for this morning, let's go back to what we said in the beginning. Where we said, I'll never be happy again. That's not true. Nothing good could come from this. That's not true. There's no point in going on. Not true. In the middle of the waiting room situation, in those situations where there's just nothing you can do and it's so frustrating, we quickly lose three things. We lose our joy, we lose our hope, and we lose our sense of purpose. But I have some great news for you. Based on the accounts of people in the New Testament, those who lived at the time of Christ, those who came after him, based on the accounts of people, followers of Jesus that, that I've been fortunate enough to do life with, new stories I've known and heard and read and, and walked with them, based on the stories of real people, you can have your joy restored. You can regain your hope. You can regain your sense of purpose. So I'm going to put a couple statements on the screen. I like to say them out loud as a declaration. If you're comfortable doing that, if you aren't, that's fine. No big deal. I'm not going to manipulate you because uh, I hate it when people do this to me when I'm sitting in a crowd. But I'd like, I think there's some value in this this morning. 
even if you don't need it right now, and if you aren't quite there, you aren't quite sure you believe it, I, I just want to challenge you to say these words out loud because there's some power in that. Because if you're in the midst of this kind of circumstance, a, a frustrating, discouraging, stalled out, going nowhere waiting room, uh, you need to renew your mind to what is true of you, what is true of your circumstances, and what is true of your Heavenly Father. Let's say these together. Uh, if you could put these next statements on the, on the screen. Let's emphasize the words in yellow, okay? Here we go. I can be happy again. Next. Something good can come from this. And last. Here's what I want to do as we wrap up this part of the service and transition into some music. For some people in this room, this is a really big deal. And yeah, sometimes I try to keep it light and just throw in a little attempts at humor. Uh, but there's nothing humorous about your situation. Maybe I get that. Because it's so deep and it's so dark and it so, seems to be so permanent. So as we launch this series and specifically as we wrap up our time around this topic this morning, I want to invite you to listen to this song. And uh, this is a song that moves me every time I hear it. And it's a song by one of my favorite groups, All Sons and Daughters. And if music doesn't speak to you, that's fine. Just, just bear with us for about four minutes. Music speaks to me and I know it does to a number of you. I've chosen this song because I think it's a way to musically, uh, to say musically what Jesus uh, said that day after John's friends left to take their message back to the dungeon. In this song, there's an incredible statement, a lyric that if we can get our hearts and minds around this, has the potential to change the way that we process the waiting room experiences of life. The lyric says, when the pieces seem too shattered to gather off the floor, and all that seems to matter is that I don't feel you anymore, I need a reason to sing. I need to know that you're still holding the whole world in your hands. And even if the theology behind that last statement, that you're holding the whole world in your hands, maybe if that means God may not be controlling every detail of your life because, I mean, how could God control every detail of my life, especially those that are the direct result of my own choices or the choices of others in my life because how could God override my free will and how could he override the free will of other people in my life who caused me so much grief? First, he couldn't and he won't. So even if all this means is that while God chooses not to intervene, he still knows, he cares, he is not apathetic, he is not silent, he is not absent. You and I, we are still the ones he loves. And maybe you need to know that God is still holding your kids your teenagers, your adult children in his hand. He's still holding your marriage in his hand. He's still holding your loved ones in his hand. He's still holding your future in his hand. Maybe our prayer is just, I just need to know. God, you don't need to tell me what's going to happen or how it's all going to work out because I accept that it may not work out the way I think it should work out. I just need to know in this moment that you know. I just need to know that you haven't forgotten, that you care, that you're here with me that you love me. So listen to this song.
I need to know the